Hello and welcome to the Meaning of Health podcast. My name is Craig. And my name is Courtney. And we are hosts. Uh, We are from the University of Western Australia School of Population and Global Health. Uh, And we've got a very special episode for listeners today, haven't we, Courtney? We do. For our first ever episode, we're going to be talking about something pretty big and pretty important for Australia and its people, and that is our national cancer screening programs. So we've got three major ones which are really, really good and uh, have achieved a lot or hopefully will achieve a lot very soon. Um, So we'll be talking about these, but before we get into that, we need to know a little bit about cancer screening um, and all of the things associated with those two topics. So that's what we're first going to talk about. Yes. So cancer, obviously cancer comes in many different forms. So uh, I think lung cancer is the most common. That's right. uh, The one, the biggest killer in Australia. And we're going to be talking about a couple of others today that, that are also pretty high on the list of cancers that kill people. Um, but a lot of them have uh, risk factors or causes that are f- similar. Uh, so what do, what do you know about some of the causes that are, that are common across cancer types? Yeah, so um, what Craig's talking about there is our risk factors. And a risk factor is something that increases our risk of getting a disease. And for cancer, there's a couple that are pretty similar across the board. Uh, the main one would be age, which unfortunately we can't do anything about, although I'm sure some of us would love to. Um, but there are some we can change, for example, smoking, diet, physical activity, all those kind of things uh, can increase your risk of cancer. Yeah. That sounds, sounds like a, uh, things that we have control of. That's so right. that's useful information to know. Um, now, what is, what is, the mechanics behind how cancer actually happens, you know, and how we become aware of it in in a person. Yeah. So cancer is basically what happens when your cells don't do the right thing. So in a normal body, cells will grow, divide, create new cells um, at a pretty normal rate. Uh, But when you're at risk of cancer, what might happen is those cells kind of go a bit weird they stop dividing properly they stop dividing properly and they might just continue to grow with this abnormality in them and then you start to get a lump and it can spread to the rest of your body and that's what we call cancer so we can detect cancer by looking for those abnormal cells Mm -hmm. so what you might hear termed precancerous cells or precancer can become cancer later on. That's right. So not all abnormal cells will turn into cancer, but a lot of them do. And when you have abnormal cells, you are more at risk of getting cancer. And I guess that brings us to our next topic for the episode, which is screening, which is uh, the first stage in how we detect cancer, isn't it? That's right. So With screening, there are certain criteria that uh, makes a good screening test. Uh, Craig, you've got information on that, right? Yeah, so essentially for screening to be of value or useful uh, in medicine, you need to have a suitable disease. Um, So a suitable disease is one which we understand how it progresses, so how it starts and what the later stages are. 
Uh, cancer is a good example of that because we do understand the natural history of cancer. Um, there also needs, and, and it also needs to be a disease where getting treatment sooner rather than later does make a difference. So there's no point if the tre- if early treatment doesn't really uh, alter the end result. Um, next, that we need to have a suitable test. So a suitable test is one that's reliable, uh, essentially. So we need to make sure that we get the same results every time we do the test. So we're not getting different results each time. So we can rely on that. It also needs to be fairly comfortable and pain-free for people getting tested because if it's not, then what we know from a lot of health research is that people won't go and get tested. So it's kind of pointless to have a test that causes excruciating pain because no one's going to go on and get it done. Um, and then we also need to have uh, treatment programs available. Once someone does get a positive test, we need to be able to treat the, the, the disease they're getting tested for. Otherwise, once again, there's no point in doing the test. And finally, it needs to be cost-effective. So there's no point having a test that costs hundreds of thousands of dollars each time it's done um, because no government or person is going to be able to afford that. Uh, and so if, we, if all those criteria are met, then you have a situation where you can screen for a, a suitable disease. But there's a, a lot of diseases out there that can't really fit into those criteria. So I have an example of a cancer that... Uh, didn't quite work out in terms of the screening uh, process. So a lot of people, uh, a lot of researchers were looking into screening programs for lung cancer because lung cancer is a a huge deal in most populations and it's the number one uh, killer for Australia's in terms of cancers. So really important disease to try and find a screening program for. And researchers were testing out x-ray screening of the chest and what they found is that you you could detect lung cancer earlier um, but the issue was there was nothing you could do about it so they detected earlier but treatment didn't make a difference with how much earlier they were detecting it so ultimately these people just found out that they had lung cancer earlier and nothing could be done about it. So it wasn't really an effective screening program. So it just caused people stress, essentially, whilst they were waiting for their cancer to get worse. Exactly right. Um, But I did read recently that people are still looking into lung cancer screening. So there's still some options out there, but that was the main one and it kind of failed. Um, But today we are going to be looking at some that have been pretty successful so far. Uh, And the three that we're going to be talking about today are breast cancer, bowel cancer, and cervical cancer. Um, So these three have been shown to be effective for screening, um, and we're going to be talking a little bit about them. Yeah, so I believe you've done a bit of work uh, researching into breast cancer and and uh, how much breast cancer occurs and, and how often and also what we can do about it. That's right. So breast cancer, obviously, is cancer in the breast tissue. Now, there's a bunch of different types of breast cancer, but we're not going to get into that today. So, um, And they're all associated with their different mortalities and survival rates and all that kind of thing. But ultimately, we kind of treat breast cancer as one thing. So in 2017 in Australia, 17,500 people were diagnosed with breast cancer for the first time that year. Uh, And that's quite a lot of people with breast cancer. So obviously a screening program is important. Uh, Within this group of people in 2018, 
about 3,500 died. So it's also got a high mortality rate associated with getting this cancer. But with people with breast cancer, they have a really good five-year survival rate. So if you're diagnosed with breast cancer, within five years, uh, 90% of people are still alive, which is fantastic. It's got a really, really good survival rate compared to a lot of other cancers that are out there. And when you look at the 10-year survival rate, it's still pretty good at 83%. Um, And the 10-year survival is kind of like the gold standard. If you can live for 10 years after getting um, yourself diagnosed with cancer, then you're doing pretty good and you're less likely to get a recurrence of cancer. (laughs) Okay. And that's that's important to know, isn't it? Absolutely, yeah. So you can kind of get rid of some stress after 10 years and be like, yep, yeah, I'm less likely to get cancer. It's going to be good. <laughs> yeah. and, and I guess that has implications for how your doctor will deal with you from that time on as well. Yeah, absolutely. So um, just as a side note with a lot of cancers for 10 years, people that get cancer, they have to go to the doctor every six months and it's every six months for 10 years. But after you hit that 10 year point, then you basically don't have to go anymore, which is fantastic. Um, So it's something that a lot of researchers will kind of pinpoint because it's a marker of reduced risk. And uh, so with respect to the screening methods for breast cancer, how how is that done? So the screening program for breast cancer, uh, the official one started in 1991 and essentially uh, women between the age of about 50 and 74 go for a mammogram and essentially what that is is you put your breast into this like metal thing and it squishes your boob around for a bit and takes a bunch of images of all the tissue inside. Then they get sent to um, some doctors and they can look for those abnormalities within your breast tissue. After that, you will get told by your doctor whether you've had a positive or negative result and then there will be further tests from that point if you get a, neg- if you get a positive result. Um, so people need to go through this screening about every two years uh, and that will pick up most uh, potential forms of breast cancer, particularly at that early stage. So for people that are going and getting screened for breast cancer, if they get a positive screen, does that mean they have breast cancer? No, it doesn't. So with all screening programs, there's uh, a portion of people that will get a positive result but don't actually have the disease. Mm-hmm. It's unfortunately one of the things that occurs with our screening tests. So uh, so how, how does someone know that they have breast cancer for sure? What, what's, what happens once they screen positive for you it. go ask your doctor um yeah so essentially uh, what will happen is you'll get a positive result your doctor will tell you um the appropriate plan that you need to go through uh and then uh, they will go and do a biopsy or something like that to test whether you've actually got those abnormal cells and then if you do you'll go through a treatment plan and just for the lay people like myself what is a biopsy a biopsy essentially is a when someone or when a doctor gets a bunch of cells and they can have a look at those cells to say, like, hey, that one's not looking great. You've probably got some abnormal cells there. So, so there's, a, there's a minor operation involved in taking those cells out of the breast, I'm assuming. That's right, yeah. So they literally take some cells out. So okay. you could see it as some form of very minor surgery. Hmm. And then what do you know about 
breast cancer treatment once someone does get diagnosed with breast cancer? What, what, what are the options for them? There are a couple of options. Uh, one of them is a mastectomy. So you can literally get your breasts removed um, and if all of the cancer cells are within that area, then that will most likely get rid of your cancer. So there's a couple of famous people that have actually had this done, one with cancer and one without cancer. Um, So Christina Applegate got a mastectomy done, a double mastectomy, um, because she knew she was at high risk of breast cancer and uh, she managed, she actually did get it and she had that surgery and now she's a survivor, mm. which is fantastic. But you can also get that surgery if you don't have breast cancer but you are at high risk. Um, and the celebrity that I'm thinking of is Angelina Jolie. She mm. got this procedure done, she removed both her breasts, but she never actually had breast cancer. But what do you understand about why she did that? What was in her background that made her worried about getting breast cancer? Yeah, so Angelina Jolie... Uh, basically went through some genetic testing and found that she had these genetic mutations which greatly increase your risk of breast cancer. And those are the BRCA1 and the BRCA2 mutations. Uh, and when you have one of these mutations, like I said, greatly increased risk of breast cancer. So Angelina took it upon herself to reduce her risk and go through that procedure. Um, which was a bit controversial at the time, I think, um, but good on her. I think it's a really good idea. Yep. Um, but, yeah, so that's one of the treatment or prevention methods of uh, breast cancer, but there's a couple of others as well. So you can go through radiation therapy or chemotherapy. Uh, radiation therapy is basically you get radiated for a little bit and it attacks the cells and kills them, or chemotherapy is where you take some drugs and that targets the abnormal cells within your body. Both are pretty horrible treatments. <laughs> yeah, they don't sound pleasant uh, and it's something that men generally don't have to go through. There are some cases of men getting breast cancer, but generally speaking, it's a female disease. Uh, what about? I, I have also heard the term lumpectomy thrown around with breast cancer. Do well, I think you're going to have to explain yeah? that one. I haven't okay. come across it. Well, my, my understanding of it is instead of removing a breast, part of a breast will be removed or the they'll try and remove the actual cancerous cells in one operation from the breast and then that's followed up with chemotherapy. So that may be one way that someone may avoid losing their whole breast or both their breasts is if the the doctor thinks that it's a good idea and that they are able, able to remove the cancer without it spreading, they may recommend that procedure if, if if someone's worried about losing a breast or both breasts. Yeah, that might be for the, the different kinds of breast cancer. Um, so... Yeah, there's lots of different types of tissue in your breast. So if you get cancer in one specific part, you might just be able to remove that. Yeah. There you go. Interesting. Yeah, super interesting. Yeah. Okay. Well, I guess, um, do you have anything else um, to add on breast cancer before we move on? Yeah. So there's just one last thing that I think we should talk about, particularly in terms of the national program that we have for breast cancer. And that is the participation rates, uh, as well as the fact that we've actually had some outcomes associated with our screening program. So currently at the moment, around 60% of people or females are participating in our screening program, which is fantastic. Like that's a really, really good participation rate. Um, And because of that, we've actually seen Um, our mortality rates decrease because we can catch these cancers earlier. Um, And we've 
also interestingly seen an increase in incidence or first ever breast cancers. The reason why we've had an increase in incidence is because we can capture more of them at an early stage. So although it seems bad, it's actually a really good outcome for our screening program because we can actually capture them and then treat them appropriately. Mm. There's an old adage that you don't know what you don't measure. And I guess this is a way of measuring. And so by testing people, we're finding out everyone that has cancer, uh, breast cancer. Exactly. So we also get some really good research research out of it as well. We get some accurate numbers, which is nice. So I guess over the next 10 or 20 years, we'll know whether there's an increase or decrease or the rates are staying the same because because the testing has been improving over time. It means we're picking up more. doesn't necessarily mean that there are more in existence. It just means that we're finding out about more. That's right. And because this program started in 1991, we've got a little bit of uh, time behind us to measure that, but it's not quite there yet. So we haven't seen stable rates or anything like that. It has been increasing over time. But in the future, hmm. we'll see what happens. Well, I think breast cancer is one of those diseases that the, they've done a great job of making people aware of it. You know, you often see pink ribbons and sort of people rattling tins at sporting events and that sort of thing. Uh, so I think that's probably one of the reasons why we're seeing such great um, rates of participation as well. Yeah, I think so too. Yeah, breast cancer is a very well-known disease. I think everyone kind of knows that all the trauma associated with it as well. It's um, very well supported by the media, which is probably one of the reasons why we've got such good participation rates. Yeah, that's good to hear. Um, all right, well, I guess the next topic that we were going to move on to was bowel cancer. That's right. So, Craig, what do you know about bowel cancer? So what I know about bowel cancer is that it, it it's a bit different to breast cancer in that it does affect both men and women, um, but men are a little bit more affected by it than women are. Uh, around 55% of cases are men usually. Um, and what we know about the current um, rates are that we're expecting around 16,000 people to be diagnosed in this year in 2019 uh, with bowel cancer and we're expecting about 5,500 people to die from bowel cancer so that, that's a little bit higher than what we saw or quite a bit higher actually than what we saw for breast cancer which you'd expect because it does affect both men and women so it's affecting double the population essentially um, and what we do know is that there is a 70% five-year survival rate and we don't have any reliable data on 10-year survival yet, and there's reasons for that that we'll go into um, because it's as far as cancers go, it's one that's relatively recently being addressed by the, the health system. Um, the screening programs for bowel cancer only really started uh, in 2006, I believe. I'd just like to interject and say it's not because they don't survive to 10 years. We just don't know yet. Right. <laughs> That's right, yeah, that's a good point. Um, so as time goes on, we'll have that information, but right now we're still collecting it to, to know whether or not people are, are surviving to 10 years. Um, but you can see the five-year survival rate there is slightly less than it is for breast cancer. Well, yeah, about 20% less. Um, so, yeah, with bowel cancer, it's obviously it's one of those cancers that may be a little less socially desirable just because of where it's occurring, which is near your bum. Um, and yeah, there's that, that sort of leads to a whole range of different outcomes for people. Um, so what we've found is that you were talking about the breast cancer screening participation rates being pretty high. Um, for bowel cancer, they're a bit under 40%. 
Right, so that's pretty low. So why do you think it is so low for bowel cancer? So I think it's possibly the way that the, the screening test happens. Um, so when you turn 50, and once again, age is a big factor in people getting bowel cancer. So 50 and over is, you know, the highest risk group between 50 and 75, I believe. Uh, once you turn 50, the government, the health department, will send you a, a bowel cancer screening kit in the mail. And that consists of a some sort of a sheet which you can put into the toilet that helps you to catch a poo when you need to go. Uh, they also include a little stick that you, you can use to take a sample of the poo. Um, you take a scraping of the poo and then you put it into a receptacle, which you then send back through the mail via Australia Post to the laboratory. Uh, and so that process is a little less attractive than maybe just going and getting a screen done, you know, f- on a machine. I feel it doesn't really fit into the criteria of screening programs we talked about earlier because <laughs> it does seem very uncomfortable. Um, but I think the the criteria addresses like physical yeah. uncomfortableness rather, rather than, than social, social or, or mental. <laughs> um, now, now, the name of that yeah. test is the faecal occult blood test or the FOBT test. And what they're trying to find is blood on, on the outside of people's poo because that indicates that they might have an issue in their colon uh, or their rectum. Um, there may be can- cancerous or precancerous cells in there that are, that's causing that bleeding. Um, and so essentially that's what they're trying to find out. Uh, and not, not all blood that comes, you know, that, that uh, ends up on people's poo means they've got cancer. Um, there might be other reasons as well. Um, but it's an indicator that they're, they're at a massively increased risk. And so the idea is that if people do uh, have blood on their faeces, they get referred to their doctor and their doctor then you know, does a, a more thorough test with them, a more thorough ex- examination. Um, so do you know how many people get a positive result and then who actually has bowel cancer out of those positive results? So of all the people... Uh, that participate in the screening program and take a sample and send it back through the mail, around 7% screen positive. Um, And then around three-quarters of those actually go to the doctor as directed uh, to get a diagnostic test. And I believe um, that around 1 in 32 who go to have the diagnostic assessment, they have either confirmed or suspected cancer diagnosed uh, and one in seven have what we call di- uh, adenomas, which are those benign growths that you talked about where it's not actually cancer but there are precancerous cells. Um, so there's a lot more people with those. But removing those cells actually greatly reduces your chances of getting cancer later on. So that's usually what happens once people get diagnosed with one of those two things. Right. That's really interesting, though, that only three-quarters of people that get a positive test go get further tests like for breast cancer that's not even reported because the majority of women will go and get those further tests done so do you have any insight on maybe why people don't go get tested further yeah so i believe it's because the the main reason is probably because the procedure is quite invasive and what i mean by that is that they get a tube with a camera on it and they stick it up your bum a fair way Uh, to take pictures of what's going on inside your colon and inside your rectum to see if they can see growths and and abnormal cells. And during that process, I believe that device that they stick up there is able to also take um, cells 
you know, cut, cut little bits of cells off to go, you know, for bi- biopsies and to test for the presence of cancer. And so that, that process may put some people off. They don't want things stuck up their bum like that. Yeah, that, that makes sense. Fair enough too. Um, so, okay, so about a quarter of people don't get those further tests done. So mm. in reality, we can't report on how many people actually get bowel cancer when they've been screened. So um, that's it's right. quite interesting in yeah. that way. So we're, ho- we're hoping that as time goes on, we'll find ways of making the process less uncomfortable uh, socially and otherwise. Um, yeah, and I, I guess that brings us to the next question is that when someone does get diagnosed with uh, bowel cancer, what are the treatments available for them? Mm. And, and is I, it the same as breast cancer, roughly? Some of it is similar. So essentially they, uh, a surgeon will go in and physically remove the cancerous or precancerous cells via surgery. And the extent of that surgery will uh, differ depending on how much the cancer has spread or, or not spread. So in, in many cases, if it's just adenomas that are confined to the, the, um, the colon or the rectum, uh, it's a fairly simple procedure just to remove those. But where the cancer spread into the, the bowel or beyond into other organs, then it can be a much larger procedure um, and bits of people's bowels get removed um, and other organs may have to be removed as well. So uh, that's why one of the key messages is early detection and you know, take preventive action rather than waiting. That's the kind of key message that keeps getting driven. Because mm, bowel cancer is a pretty serious form of cancer as well, so there's not very good outcomes associated yeah. with it. Yeah, once it starts spreading, it becomes a real problem. Once it gets into the things called the lymph nodes and whatnot, it can end up in, in other organs like the liver pretty quickly and becomes much harder to treat. And then I think that's when chemotherapy would be an option as well. And you know, I think most people who've been through chemo would tell you that they would do anything to avoid it. Uh, Absolutely, yeah. It's not yeah. not a great treatment, but yeah. it's one of the few that we have for cancer. So. Yeah. Yeah, so that, those are kind of the highlights on bowel cancer, which is um, a very cheery topic. <laughs> but luckily, I've got one that's, um, you know, it's still cancer, so it's not great, but mm. it's a bit more of a, a good news story here yeah. in Australia. So cervical cancer... Again, cancer of the cervix, it's your abnormal cells within that area. Um, But here in Australia, we have a fabulous screening program in combination with the HPV vaccine, which I'll I'll talk about very soon, Um, but not right now, because I should talk a little bit about cervical cancer and how much we have in Australia. Uh, So in 2015, there were only 857 new cases, so it's not very common anymore, but before our screening programs and before our vaccines, uh, it was the sixth most common cancer in women. And it also had uh, quite a high mortality rate, again, like a lot of cancers. But currently, for example, in 2016, there were only 259 deaths associated with uh, cervical cancer. So, again, mortality has been decreasing and the number of new cases has been decreasing over time. It has a relatively similar survival rate to bowel cancer at 73% for the five-year survival rate. And we don't currently have, as far as I'm aware, we don't currently have the 10-year survival rates similar to the whole bowel cancer situation. Okay. Um, now, 
the reason why mortality has been decreasing and also the incidence or the number of new cases has been decreasing is because of our wonderful screening program as well as our HPV vaccines. Now, our HPV vaccine is a preventative measure and what that is doing is it's uh, stopping people from getting the HPV virus and that is the human papillomavirus. Essentially, when people have that virus, they are significantly more likely to get cervical cancer, among other cancers as well. So I think there's some cancers that are male-related that it can also uh, reduce as well. So they're kind of looking at uh, vaccinating men, which is pretty awesome. Um, But, yeah, this vaccine has kind of reduced the number of uh, incidents of cervical cancer and because of our screening program, we can find them early, get rid of it, and then they never actually had cervical cancer in the first place. I was going to ask you about that. Uh, You mentioned that men don't currently get vaccinated, Um, but I'm assuming men are carriers of the virus and do pass it on to their partners. That's right. Um, So there's a little bit of controversy about this, and I think they've just started to get uh, boys to be vaccinated with this HPV vaccine. Uh, But what they kind of found is that, yeah, so men can pass it on to women and then the women are more likely to get cervical cancer. But it's it's not just about cervical cancer. There's a bunch of other cancers that affect both sexes um, that this vaccine can reduce. So although cervical cancer is the main one, there's like throat cancer it reduces. There's all sorts of different cancers that this one kind of helps. So although the vaccine has been implemented for women for a number of years now, it's only recently been brought in for boys and men. Right, okay. And what just um, just briefly, what sort of age are we talking about for people getting the vaccine? Um, So you're going to get the vaccine when you're at school age. So it's in your teens uh, and that's because all of your sexual activity technically hasn't really started yet for most people Uh, and because this is a virus that can be passed through sexual activity not just that but that's the main main way it's passed through Uh, so by introducing this vaccine uh, when everyone's a teenager you're more likely to stop that transfer Mm. of that virus we probably will do an episode just on the hpv vaccine at some stage, so I won't go, we won't go into it in too much detail. But Yeah, because this is about the screening program, yeah. not the vaccine. But yeah, but it is interesting to know a little bit about it. Exactly, because yeah. the screening program shows the effect of the vaccine. And it, with the story of cervical cancer within Australia, it's kind of been a whole mixed bag with uh, this program. And, yeah, so they've kind of been implemented together and affected each other as well. Um, now... For the screening program itself, uh, what's involved is a pap smear, which, again, is not a very comfortable test. Essentially, you go to the doctor uh, and they take a bunch of cells from your cervix, uh, which is not very nice to do. And there's a couple of side effects as well. So you might get some bleeding for a day. Uh, You might, like, get a bit bruised or things like that. So it's not a great one, but... Uh, for this screening program, around 55% of women aged between 20 and 69 have participated in this screening program. So, again, there's a relatively high participation rate, which is awesome. Um, 
What's kind of recently happened, though, is that this pap smear originally was brought in to be done every two years within this age group, but now it's every five years, and that is because of this vaccine that's been introduced. And so is that because it's relatively safe if someone has a negative screen that they're unlikely to get that uh, you know, get that disease happening within five years? Yeah, that's right. So typically uh, screening tests are usually done within two years. That seems to be a good time frame to capture most cancers. But because of this vaccine, we've just seen so few new cases uh, that they found that five years captures roughly the same amount of people that get that disease. So okay. there's no longer any point in doing the screening test that frequently. Um, and by doing them less, it's also more cost-effective, yep. particularly if they're capturing the same amount of people. And less discomfort That's for, right. for the women in our population. That's exactly right. Getting them done every five years is nowhere near as bad as every two years. Um, so, yeah, so these two have kind of evolved together. And because of that, we've got some really good results uh, for our Australian population. And, in mm. fact, our screening program, along with the vaccine, has been something that's kind of been revolutionary for Australia. We are kind of the first people to really have this result and people have looked at Australia, our results for cervical cancer, and gone, hey, we should be doing this too, which is so cool. So it's fairly, pretty much world-leading, isn't it? That's right. Yeah. And so with this screening for HPV or for cervical cancer, um, if someone gets a positive screen, once again, that doesn't mean that they necessarily have cancer, does it? That's right. So uh, about 93% of people will get a negative result, so 7% of people will get a positive result. And of that 7%, not many people actually have cervical cancer. So uh, in 2016, out of every 100 pap smear tests, five abnormalities were detected. So, again, that's less than the 7% that I was talking about um, because there's two tests done with the pap smear. So five, um, through one pathway, five abnormalities are detected with only 1.2 of those being a, a high-grade abnormality. And then through the other pathway of testing that they do with the pap smear, roughly... Uh, seven of every 1,000 women will get a screen that has a high-grade abnormality, which means it's a, it's a big one, basically. Right. So 7% of people get a positive result, but in reality only 5% have an abnormality and only 0.7% have a high-grade abnormality in their cells. So you're quite likely to, if you do get a positive uh, result, you don't necessarily have the cancer. Okay. Okay. And once someone um, gets this and they go for the diagnostic test, uh, what does that involve? So after the pap smear? Yeah. You so mean? They, so the, the pap smear comes back as a positive. For, yeah. Okay. Yeah. So if they get a positive result, uh, the, their doctor will contact them. And then the, the biopsy is actually something that they can do with the pap smear results. Uh, so you'll get confirmation to say, can we do a biopsy? Uh, and then you'll go through the associated treatments with cervical cancer. So, again, pretty similar to all of the other cancers that we've talked about. You can either get it removed, uh, depending on how far that cancer's spread, um, but if you catch it 
at an early stage, it just might be getting rid of those abnormal cells. Yeah. And so from all the, the figures that you've just quoted there, it seems like this really has been a great success. Um, the screening program does what it is supposed to do. It, it identifies an issue really early in the stages um, before it gets, you know, before it spreads and grows. Uh, it's relatively cheap from what I understand. Um, yep. It's a little bit uncomfortable, but that's weighed up against the fact that it's quite a serious potential illness that it's preventing. Uh, and, yeah, as, you, as a result, we're seeing compared to bowel cancer, which is, you know, under 40% participation, we're seeing 55%. Um, and I, I think it's probably important to note that um, bowel cancer being a male um, predominant disease men are less likely to go and get their health checked out, aren't they? Yeah, so I think also because I've been talking about female cancers as well, females tend to be pretty proactive in our health, particularly in terms of prevention. Uh, so anything related to health and prevention, you're more likely to going to get females that will participate. And it, it's not because there's a difference between the two sexes there's there's or like genetic differences or whatever it's purely kind of like a social construct i feel um so yeah like with women you're more likely to to get those uh screenings done in order to prevent but yeah do you know any more information about that in terms of the men's side i guess i think men's psychology and attitude as a group tends to be one where they try to be stoic uh, on the outside and, you know, maybe want to think that they're, they can just deal with it themselves um, when often these issues are complicated and not well understood by the general population. Um, and so, yeah, hopefully that, that changes. I know we've seen big advances in mental health with, with men seeking treatment because, you know, things, things like suicide tend to affect younger men way more than younger women. Um, but, yeah, the, the challenge is just getting that to transfer across to physical health problems as well. Yeah, uh, particularly preventative as well when mm. they might not have any symptoms. It might be difficult for men to send their poop in the mail. <laughs> yeah, and that is one of the big challenges with bowel cancer, just going back to that briefly, is that it, you can have it for a long time with no symptoms. Um, by the time you get to the stage where you have got some of the uh, possible symptoms like an upset stomach and whatnot, it can often be because the cancer's in a, a much more advanced stage and it can, you know, really be a problem to try and treat it. Mm. Okay. So, Courtney, just before we before we wrap up, uh, it's, it's fairly clear that there seems to be a bit of a correlation between the participation rates in screening and the results in terms of re reduction in cancer deaths and lower numbers of people dying. If we look at bowel cancer, which is very high, uh, mortality rate compared to something like cervical cancer, which is very low, we see big differences in the, the screening participation rates. So what do you have a comment on that? Yeah, I think it's something that's almost associated with how well it's displayed in the media as well and things like that. Like the cervical screening program and the, the vaccines, the vaccines have been... Uh, basically put into schools so a lot of people are aware of it and the screening program is something that well at least I learned at quite an early age so it was about 
it would have been about maybe 10 years. Um, I had known about the screening program before I even had to first get it done, which is crazy. And I don't think um, there's that same awareness as uh, with the bowel cancer screening. Um, yeah, I only found out recently that such screening existed. Yeah, I, I think it's a bit of a cultural issue as well. Um, I think we have a pretty squeamish culture in, in Western countries. Uh, I've lived in, in a couple of different places and I, I remember in... Um, Europe in particular, in Germany, that people would often inspect their poo in the toilet, that some of the toilets have little shelves in there to, you know, you can inspect whether your poo looks healthy or not. That is so weird. (laughs) Yeah. And so us as Australians probably find that a bit gross, but, you know, the reality is I haven't checked the the German screening participation rates, but I'm going to guess that they don't have a problem going and talking with their doctor about their bowel habits and uh, other issues that we might find a bit disgusting. That would be so interesting to see. I wonder whether other countries do have high participation rates um, because of that. Yeah, it's, mm. it's definitely not something that's accepted within society. However, uh, on a slight side note, I have seen an app on your phone where you can look at different kinds of poop and you can compare to others. So we, we do have a little bit of that in Western society, but I don't think it's quite accepted. Yeah, okay. Well, there's plenty to digest there. Pardon the pun. Um, <laughs> that but... was terrible. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but I, I guess if there were a couple of really key messages out of what we've found because we're not cancer researchers and we're, we're learning about a lot of this stuff for the first time, just like many of the, our listeners probably will be. Um, what would you say are the, are the sort of two, one or two really key messages here? Go get screened. Yeah. I think that's probably your biggest one because then uh, you'll be able to save a lot of hassle in the future. Um, our screening programs are there for a reason, so we should definitely participate in it and it's it's there to help our health and, and help our life. I think that's the, the main message yeah. from our podcast today. And I would say uh, just in addition to that, let's get used to having conversations like this. Yeah, definitely. Like not only does it allow everyone to kind of get some more information about it, but it can be pretty funny and, and uh, interesting to learn about. So we should definitely... Uh, have more conversations about these kind of things even if it is uncomfortable yeah well we all have colons and we all uh, have butts yeah so <laughs> main message number two let's try and make sure that they're as healthy as possible that's right all right so before we go um if people want to get in touch with us do you have the contact details there courtney yep so we have an email address that you're more than welcome to an uh, email to if you have any ideas of uh, future podcasts that we can do future episodes and that email is meaning of health at outlook.com so feel free to send us an email with your thoughts or if we've said anything wrong and you want to correct us go for it as well uh, we also have a twitter so you can tweet us at health means what and we will probably reply on there too yes i think we will uh, and we plan on releasing one episode a fortnight at this stage that's right um, obviously we will keep monitoring that and and see how we're going with that but that's that's our intention at this stage that's right Um, All right, well, thanks very much for listening and thank you, Courtney. And thank you, Craig. It's an absolute pleasure and we'll be back soon with another episode. Sounds good. See you later. See you later. The Meaning of Health podcast is produced with the support of the School of Population and Global Health 
and the Education Enhancement Unit at the University of Western Australia. The podcast is produced by Craig Cumming and Courtney Webber with music by Craig Cumming.